Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. On today's episode, we speak with Reynold Verrick, who is president of Xavier University of Louisiana. Reynold and podcast host Armand Alawalia discuss the importance of your alumni and how to create an ecosystem that embraces a meaningful engagement with them. Reynold, welcome to the Illumination podcast. It's great to be chatting with you. Happy to be with you. So let's start off talking a little bit about alumni engagement. This is obviously a critical topic for every institution, but for you know not-for-profits and for smaller institutions, it becomes especially critical. What does meaningful alumni engagement look like? Well, meaningful alumni engagement uh, means participating in the mission, even after one's left the campus, one's graduated and has gone into an, uh, uh, their uh, subsequent life. Uh, and for us, it's actually committing to the culture of service, which comes from, from, from our charism and our mission, the same so that they are engaged in serving the current students just as they themselves were served when they were young women and men on campus. And that social of engagement, not only in the career work network for our students, but also involving in our clearly financial support for students. Our alumni are very much engaged in the recruitment process. So they're scattered States are a lot, many, many in the, in the, in, in the Midwest, upper Midwest, many in the out West, many in the Northeast as well. And our alumni are very much engaged in the recruitment process and also in the send off for our students. So they are a resource even for our parents and even the, the counseling that parents need, especially when our, our first generation parents who may have very little insight from their experience of how to support a young woman or man in college. The alumni are a resource because they become friends and extended family in a, in, in a, in a very long-standing way. So that engagement is actually to be part of the mission. And I think they are, even though they are not on our faculty, they are not uh, internal to Xavier's governance in a, in, in, in a significant way, but they clearly are sustainers of a, the legacy and mission in the, in the way they understand it. And they, in some ways, counsel us in, in, in whether we are getting it right. You know, it's it's a fascinating topic. I think for so many institutions, when they think about alumni engagement or the alumni community, it tends to boil down to the idea of future donors. And that's kind of where the relationship ends. You know, we think about alumni in terms of homecoming. We think about alumni in terms of football tickets. But we might not think about alumni as being active members of the community or active learners in sort of an open loop learning model upon graduation, we, we very much kind of bracket them into these very specific silos. Why does Xavier University of Louisiana have such a different culture when it comes to uh, the relationship that it develops and maintains with its alumni? Well, I, uh, for a number of reasons, but I'll begin with this one, that in many ways, our charism, if we look at our mission, which says contribute to a more just and humane society, it's very much a notion that, if I translate it, it's, it's about the meaning of what you are doing, what you learned at Xavier, whether as a biologist, chemist, teacher, uh, that you go into law school or medical school or whatever, that none of that will have any meaning until you are, you are put into the service of someone else. So it's very other-centered. That other-centeredness that, they, that, that begins really on campus in, uh, in how students interact, and that's a self-sustaining culture. That, that, that transforms students in, in a significant way. I think that's the key piece. So the alumni are in some ways are asking themselves consciously or unconsciously, am I, of serve, am I being of service? 
not only to Xavier, not only to anyone else, not only to my to my family, but to the larger world as well. So that comes out of the culture of, and it is it is part of our legacy as being an HBC, which means descended from the uh, legacy of uh, the formerly enslaved, and also being Catholic in our in our faith uh, tradition also is other centered. It's not about the individual. Absolutely. So when it comes to building um, an environment that engages alumni and frankly engages the community in which the university sits, what are some of the challenges that a, that a higher ed institution can face when trying to build these, these relationships and these ties? Well, I think the, the, the largest challenge is that the alumni are a heterogeneous group. Uh, you have thousands of alumni and you have hundreds of different perspectives on any given issue. Uh, so the assumption, I think the assumption of that, that, that there's an alumni perspective, right, is like there's an American perspective. Right. <laughs> That's actually the, uh, the largest, that diversity of views. Also within the alumni, there's a generation, there are generational spans. For example, we have at least three generations. If we look at, at least we think of generations in 25 year increments, right? We have at least three generations of alumni. Yeah. Uh, some come before the civil rights movement. Uh, uh, of the 60s, some who are in the middle of the days of rage, the Vietnam War, the, uh, and others who are really coming out of the 90s, even if I'm thinking of our recent polls, very different experiences of the world and very different views of what America is and, and what America will be. Even out, so that to understand that diversity and to actually bridge that and, and, and actually see the commonalities, acknowledge the difference of, of life experience. Mm-hmm. That, that's the child that every university has to deal with. And I might put up one other piece that actually I think of myself as an alumnus of, of, of institutions that in many ways, uh, my view of the institutions where I was, where I grew up, where I came to be, where I cut my teeth, where I made my mistakes uh, is very conservative. It's actually a view of the institution when I was in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I look at the place, they've changed it. <laughs> this isn't where I went. <laughs> Because this is why, 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 why are these students doing this? That's not yeah. what we would. Have. And that that I think that dissonance plays out in the, in the alumni across the, across the generations and and, and, and even as the alumni as a cohort because we have that dissonance. That's part of being an alumnus of any institution. So you know what? That's it's a really interesting point. I I want to follow up on this momentarily because it, that's. I'll be totally honest with you. I went, I went to a very traditional institution and I'm based in Canada. So I went to Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, and it's an institution sort of well known for its alumni traditions. It's well known for its, uh, the culture, but culture changes. Um, and you know, the, the alumni from the seventies and eighties when they'd come to campus and see the stuff we were doing didn't make sense. And now when I go back, there's things that the students there are doing that don't align with my view of what that culture should be. How does the institution engage with its alumni to help them understand the way the culture of the institution is evolving when the role of the alumni to a certain extent is to be the the guardians of institutional culture to a certain extent? They are the guardians of the identity of the institution. It's, I, I, they can do both. What we, I think where it begins is that a number of alumni are engaging with, with, with the students of today. Many of us are parents. So we, 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 we are living the dissonance. Uh, but they are engaged with students, and, that, and actually they do see the difference, and, and, and there are conversations between younger students, and, and I think it's, I think, one of the f- great generative 
experience to actually be engaging with the generations where both are teaching each other. That's important. And I think there, there is respect. And sometimes there's the amazement of, of the older generation at the genius that is seeing these young women and men. So, so you, you have that. The other part is to communicate very intensely, very intentionally and explain why we are doing certain things. Mm-hmm. For example, if you think about uh, in, the last, um, in the last 20 years, oh, I say 30 years, even the, how the issues of race and identity have played out diff- are playing out differently and the young people are moving in places that the generation of the 60s and 70s is, is understanding, but not, it's not their yeah. experience. Uh, I'm quoting, I quote a, a, an older colleague from um, was LA, once referred to, he was referring to um, race and equity and justice about 17 years ago on college campuses. And he was saying that I have to quote you a proverb, an Arab proverb, which says the caravan has moved on, but the dogs keep barking. And I use that to explain to you is that because if you think about it, we in this room, we're having a conversation about things of race and equity, my mm-hmm. perspective. But the younger people on campus have moved on. They're doing, they have other questions. They're not your questions. Right. And, 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 and he nailed, this was probably, this is almost like, oh, this, this is one 2000. And he says, just look around on campus, who's dating who? When that could not happen in your generation. Yeah. That, they yeah. They, in other words, they've moved on. Their perspective is quite different. Uh, they also are hunger. They also hunger to learn from us, because that mm. context of where this comes from is important to them as well. So there is a great honor and respect for the generation. At the same time, I think it's a natural part of being human that, that we experience that. Uh, I'll, I'll quote one other piece I remember from the Harvard Lampoon in 1970s, 1980s, where the motto was to find the limits of good taste and go one step beyond. That was every challenge. <laughs> Think about it, right? I'm going to grow my hair. I'm going to put a nose ring. <laughs> so the limits of good taste for the older generation and go one step beyond. That's almost what every generation has done. That's I, I I feel it's important that you know that that's going to stay with me for a really long time. I'm going to be cooking on that idea for a while. You know, let me ask you something, because there's we know that the post-secondary institution can be a relatively siloed place. Um, departments tend to to exist in in isolation from one another. It can be challenges challenging to create alignment. But through the course of this conversation, we've touched on a number of different parts of the institutional ecosystem that drive to create not just a strong campus culture, but a strong campus community that involves its alumni, that creates a learning environment that that's designed not just for the learners that are there today, but the learners that were there before and those that'll come later. There's a number of different offices that play a role here. There's obviously alumni engagement and development. They have a critical role to play, but there's also the, the academic offices. There's the School of Continuing Education. There's student affairs. And, and student life, how do you start to create interconnectivity between those different offices to, to help to create intentionality around how the institution delivers this culture where, you know, otherwise it might be the result of numerous individual interactions, but maybe not something coordinated? Well, I think in, in, in one dimension, it requires that even at the, at the leadership position, even what I would call the cabinet, that the members there recognize that their interconnectedness, but also that 
they rely, they depend on each other to, to actually address large issues. Mm. The important issues are never the issues of any one office. For example, if you think about a student who's struggling with uh, persistence in college, right? There is clearly an academic dimension that maybe the dean and the academic affairs people do, but basically there's a student affairs, student life component as well. Then it's, it's that partnership that actually can, can, can resolve the needs of that student. And so the, the acknowledgement that basically no decision that I make as provost, as VP uh, facilities, uh, is independent of, uh, uh, it cannot be questioned or doesn't have perspective from student affairs, housing, and all the other, and all the other parts of the university. Yeah. Uh, so that, that those concepts have to be very fluid. Now, the other part is that as we do, there are major pieces that are truly integrate, inter, that integrate many parts. For example, what we do, for example, when we welcome an alumni in homecoming, uh, it truly brings in many pieces of, of, of the university. But also if we talk about how the alumni associations and the, and the chapters are engaged in recruitment, that clearly it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an enrollment issue, right? And, and how we keep these young people on campus, find funding them as, as well. But also the conversations about with, 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 with um, all, the other, all the other dimensions of campus are engaged in the alumni chapters as well. So the fact that they all have, from their perspective, some engagement with the, with the alumni in some ways brings them together. I think that integration uh, for all universities and to all organizations tend to like very neat compartments. But I think at the same time, our battle is to actually break those silos because don't succeed in the silos. Because for example, if someone tries to make a decision uh, and the schedule says someone else has something else important, if we haven't talked, we have a problem. A bad problem. Yeah, and and that's 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 one of the simple simpler examples. So clearly, the integration and moving beyond the silos to say that basically my authority is not is, is not is, is not ultimate within my sector because everyone within their leadership and with every division has some right and duty to trespass into your territory because <laughs> that's the collaboration. That's that's the yeah. important collaboration. Absolutely. So, I mean, let's tackle the, the question of low-hanging fruit, you know, as you think about um, not necessarily your own campus, but the, the standard campus, what are some low-hanging fruit that senior leadership can, can start with to begin strengthening the, the institutional relationship with its alumni community and, and its community in general, its service area? I think uh, the, the first piece is, is, is more fluid communication, is more fluid communication. I think it's also including options for involving the alumni into the, not necessarily the, when I say the academic life, the intellectual life of the campus, not necessarily the career, the courses because alumni have lives and complicated lives, but there are many that occur on campus that are having deep discussions, speakers, things like that. Now we have facilities to actually put these things on, on disseminated media, on Zoom and things like that, to welcome the alumni into those important conversations because universities will have a role especially now fractured society. Universities have a role to play uh, the new, to be the, to be the neutral ground, to use a, mm -hmm. a very new analogy, to be the place where those conversations are, and to engage the alumni. And part of that is less generations and engaging the generations and the students in these conversations. And we're modeling how that can be done very well and respectfully. The alumni are an important part of that because it cannot just be just a student community. Uh, it, it's also in those conversations exactly asking the hard question of why certain groups are, dis, are, uns, are unsettled with something, other groups are not. For example, takes the uh, 
the complexity of transgender athletes, right? It's very mm-hmm. complex, right? We need to listen to each other. At the same time, we feel that we have a responsibility to take care of people. Yeah. And that, and, and, and that those things are not diametrically opposed. They seem to be in, the, in a polarized setting, right? So those difficult things, we need the alumni in, in the conversation. I think the, they, that, their presence is part of the learning, is a learning experience for, for the younger students and I think, and vice versa. The other part, the other, the, the other work I think alumni have for us, an important way of representing us where we cannot be. We are not, we can't be in 56 president at the same time. And they represent us in significant ways. Even in, as we do a capital campaign, for us a significant effort for us. The alumni become, should, and, 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 and they welcome it, but we need to recognize how they can be examples of our, of our, of our success and represent us in ways. The alumni for our students, our incoming students and our current students are an example of what's possible for them as well. For example, one of the pieces that we do at Xavier, I think, and I recommend is that in our career development efforts, right? We have, we have a program where alumni and some non-alumni friends come to Xavier for many careers, right? And spend a week visiting classes and to show, and whereas their students are exploring these unusual career pathways, for example, the chemist who becomes a CIA analyst, okay? Or the uh, uh, historian who's now, who's now a psychiatrist. Uh, to show that how people find their way through their pathways that it's also helping students understand that the uh, disciplines that they are engaged in are not narrowing their, their options, but actually opening them to a wide range of options. Um, that sort of the alumni having practical work in the educational work, especially in, 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 in the uh, co-curricular work of the university, yes. we engage them. Let's talk a little bit more about the idea of co-curriculum and the idea of, of student engagement in general, because I think we're starting to get to a secondary role that the institution plays. It's not necessarily just in conferring degrees and registering students into degree programs and ensuring that the academic machination works. It's about creating a holistic learning environment, one that's designed around learner success, one that recognizes the humanity of the individuals it serves. How do you create a robust co-curriculum within a post-secondary organization? And from the perspective of relationship development with learners, how valuable is that environment to creating a robust alumni community as opposed to more of a transactional environment where students, you know, come in, pay their money, get their degree, leave? Well, uh, for us, and I'm speaking specifically for Xavier Louisiana, uh, the service mission of our students, the fact that we probably have 30 plus thousand hours of student hours per year of service for a school of less than 3,000 students. Oh, that sense of purpose in why we are here and education, it's not just education for a job, it's not just educate for a good job, which some people narrow education that way, it's educating with a sense of purpose. And basically, where will you be of service? And understand that that may change throughout your life. That sense of purpose is, is part of the co-curriculum, that the activities that students do, not only to serve each other, but which actually in, in doing that, it also creates community and friendships and also all the good that's good for, our, for us, our being as psychic individuals. But the sense of exactly of being of service in general, whether internally or externally, I think is a sense of purpose. That's clearly part of the, now we, many of the words are terms of, for example, teaching leadership skills, 
In doing that, one learns leadership, one learns many other skills. Uh, but part of that leadership, um, to quote a uh, colleague, uh, Chris Lowney, who writes about uh, Jesuits to uh, the company of Jesus to American banking and things like that, mm -hmm. and look at leadership quite differently from the way banking or American industry would look at banking, leading other people to make them follow my vision. So the leadership is also about lear learning to lead oneself and knowing oneself. Right. Here's one, that growth is actually what happens uh, in, in, in those leadership, those activities, whether it is about the student newspaper, the student play, or whether it is about the, the, the science students, the chemistry students who do tutoring in several high schools, in several high schools and, and do, and they do together, travel together, but also they engage and they, and they are giving of themselves. <laughs> and that all that is leadership that actually develops a person to come to know oneself and to know who I am, why I am. Uh, that's where the co-curriculum actually really enriches students' lives. You'll find the same thing if you go to some of our sister institutions and Jesuits who talk about uh, the uh, uh, when we educate mind, body, and spirit, right? The uh, the whole person. That sense of education actually is at the fundamental is, is at the fundamental of education for all of us. And I think uh, part of that also removes education from the purely materialistic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Reynolds, I mean, I, I tell you, I'm, I think I mentioned this to you, I'm, I'm absolutely going to be cooking on this conversation for quite some time. There's some, I, I really, I so appreciate your time. Now, I will tell you, this is not just a podcast for people passionate about higher education. It's also a podcast that has a lot of people very passionate about their food. I happen to be one of those people. So you happen to come from and are based in one of the best food cities, arguably on the planet, New Orleans, Louisiana. If someone's going out for dinner in New Orleans, what are at least two of the places where they need to go? <laughs> I'll give you two, which are not necessarily on the main line. For example, I'll never leave out, for example, uh, Leah Chase's restaurant, which is now Dookie Chase. Leah, Leah passed away. Iconically in New Orleans, if you want to know Dookie Chase, that's one. But also, it's a range, the diversity of food that is occurring in New Orleans, for example. Uh, Jamila's Cafe, small, maybe uh, 10 tables, maybe. Jamila's Cafe off Maple, Tunisian, husband and wife. Jamila, the chef, is Jamila. The husband takes the front. Fantastic Tunisian, but also the integration of Southern European and Northern African. Mm. Maybe most people don't know about it. It's a great little place. The other one is a uh, uh, newcomer in the last decade from uh, Boston, uh, Fritai, F-R-I-T-A-I. It's a small, it's one of the, he opened, he opened first of all a uh, stand at the Rock, at the Rock, St. Rock Market. Wow. Now he opened, Fritai is now open down, not far from the uh, downtown. And that's Haitian restaurant. And the way you see the integration of uh, both Caribbean the Haitian, and also what you see is the linkage between that cuisine and what is New Orleans cuisine. Mm -hmm. and the, the commonality the, and the difference between even how they use okra and things like that. Um, but uh, he's a brilliant young chef, but yeah, um, Charlie's good. There are also places that where you see even New Orleans, the integration between how Vietnamese food is becoming New Orleans food. Yes. And that teaches you something about 
how New Orleans has always been an evolution of, of integrating different traditions. When the Italians came around, you started seeing how food changes well from, from their culture. And before the Italians came, you had others. And then you have um, advent of always new people. And always in the background are Latin Americans of different ilks coming through. Um, we even have New Orleans tamales. And, and New Orleans, the tamales in Louisiana are a little greasier. They are authentic in New Orleans, different like Manny's tamales. The tamales are different. And what you realize is that they were brought in there by Mexicans. Right. Because Mex the Mexicans in, uh, and Honduras too have a long standing, but from my understanding, Mexicans who were during the early 1900s revolutions in Mexico, when battles would fail, many of the armies that lose take refuge in southern in, in southern Texas and also in, 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 in New Orleans, and they would bring certain traditions that remain and get reinvented in New Orleans. <laughs> right, because then they're they're in sort of the melting pot or the mixing pot that is and, southern and, Louisiana. And when they leave, they leave a tradition that becomes part of New Orleans. So what you're seeing is a. Uh, there's an old whole archaeology of New Orleans that you can see in foods how people drop certain things that show traces of, of, of different influences. Uh, even for example, if you look at filet, filet at our gumbo, the gumbo would yeah. normally open, but then you have filet, which is actually from uh, sassafras leaves, and you can see it's a Native American tradition that actually mm -hmm. gave. You, you see this the range of food, and also what you see is people are mixing them. You have interesting mixing, for example, uh, gumbo zeb, which is a, a tradition of gumbo with, with, with greens in it. And then I remember someone mentioning a recipe for gumbo zeb with lemongrass. That's Southeast Asian influence. <laughs> I mean, that would be unbelievable, though. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah. saying, uh, there's a lot of experimentation in New Orleans cuisine and a lot of your hands coming from many different places, especially post-Katrina. That's why you're seeing these different influences coming together. and. Uh, so I'd say Dookie Chase Futai, and I'd say Jamila's right now would give you a nice sampling of uh, New Orleans. You are an, you're a gentleman. Thank you so much again for, for your time here today and, and uh, for taking the time out to chat. Really do appreciate having you on. This podcast is made possible by a partnership between Modern Campus and The Evolution. The Modern Campus Engagement Platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result? Innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner lifecycle that engages modern learners for life, while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.